Hey, it's Fallon. You're listening to the Heartbroken Podcast. This is the second time I'm recording this because the first time, I don't even know what happened. I started talking about something for like two minutes and forgot what I even started talking about. So I was like, I need to redo this. Um, but basically, it all came down to uh, this week. It's uh, I'm talking to someone in a different state. and It's so crazy how much the podcast has changed as I'm approaching the three-year anniversary, which is uh, kind of insane to me. And I say approaching loosely because it's, I think, July that's actually the three-year anniversary, but that's on the horizon. I'm looking optimistically to summer um, and when we can go outdoors and do more things, although it's been pretty nice in Minnesota, and I say nice in quotes. Um, if you listen anywhere else, if you are listening in Texas, Louisiana, all the places that have been hit, God, I mean, it's one of those things where uh, you just can't imagine it, and I, I we're thinking about you and how much life can just shift and change and how scary everything's been. Like, we don't even know the half of it. I feel like I'm sitting here in Minnesota where we are completely used to cold and how to handle it. Um, and so, anyway, just thinking of you. If you listened to Eric's episode last week, thank you so much for that. Um, I know that a lot of us have gone through the loss of a friend. I have, and I didn't get into that because the podcast isn't about me. Um, but I have a, a, a hard story uh, about my friend I lost in my senior year of high school. And... Um, and so hearing that, uh, it really it really stuck with me. So I hope you're having a good week. I hope you're going to have a great weekend. If you're listening like on Friday for the weekend, uh, for me, it's payday, which is exciting news. Uh, but like I said, our guest, it doesn't live here in the state. And so I'm, I'm so thankful. When you think of things you're thankful for, um, I am definitely thankful that I figured out how to do the podcast with people across the state and across the world. I do wish the audio was a little bit better, but here we go. Nicole joins me today on the Heartbroken Podcast. Nicole, what will we hear in your story today? Today in my story, we're going to be hearing about how my heartbreak turned into my daughter's heartbreak and her worst nightmare. I'm Fallon, and this is the Heartbroken Podcast. Everyone has experienced heartbreak in their life, some more than others. Often, we feel like we're bothering our family or friends when we talk about it. I started this podcast to help those going through heartbreak share their stories. Sometimes it's easier to share with someone they don't know. I hope it's somewhat therapeutic for them. Maybe it gives them some closure. And to those listening, I hope it helps you feel less alone. Thank you for listening to the Heartbroken Podcast. I, yeah, I, as a, a new mom, anytime I hear something that involves a kid, I immediately, uh, I just feel it in my heart, Nicole. So, uh, let's go into your relationship and tell me a little bit about how you and your daughter's dad met. So my daughter's dad and I met, um, we both worked at the mall and, um, I was 17 and he was 23 at the time. And I worked at Foot Locker, and he worked at Verizon in the mall. And, yeah, so we were in the food court one day, and we were getting food. And my sister slipped her slipped my phone number to him because he whispered to her that he wanted my phone number. And it just kind of went from there. Um, basically, what happened is I went on vacation to my dad's house that summer. And then when I came back, we immediately hit it off and began talking and hanging out every single day. So you started dating when you were super young then. Yeah, super, super young. And 
did you guys have a normal relationship or would you say it was kind of chaotic or how would you describe it? Um, it was pretty normal at first, um, but uh, pretty early into the relationship, it got chaotic. Um, he, you know, was, I mean, he did and said all the right things. Um, but then once we started getting really comfortable with one another, I mean, we never like stayed at each other's house at first. Um, actually, in fact, we didn't even stay at each other's house until I moved to in with him. Oh, okay. And so, um, we would just basically be together all day, every day. Um, so we started dating in June of 2013 and then, um, in October of 13. So very shortly after, um, one night I went over and he was acting very strange and was unlike himself completely. He, um, was just tired and like would talk in his sleep very strangely And then I went out and he had roommates at the time and I went out and talked to his roommates and he came out and he was so angry and he was like, why are you out here talking to them? And, um, it was just very strange and his behavior was strange. And that night when I went home, I actually called his roommate and asked his roommate to go check on him and told him what happened. And his roommate went into the room and found baggies of heroin. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, um, I knew he was a recovering drug addict, but I mean, like, I didn't know that he would, um, go into actively using again. Yeah. And so obviously his roommate didn't know either. That was probably a surprise for him. Right. Yeah. And so, um, later on in that month, so in October of 2013, he went home for a wedding and home to him is Kansas city, Missouri. And when he came back, he told me a big lie and told me that his mom had cancer and that he had to move home and so on and so forth. But um, it turns out that his roommates had moved out and left him because they were also recovering and didn't want to relapse. Mm. And um, then people started – the people who were selling him drugs were breaking into his home and stealing things. And he decided that moving to Kansas City is what his answer was. Wow. Uh, and he lied and said his mom had cancer and that's why he was moving there. Right. And then I found out that it was false. <laughs> so did you try to make the relationship work long distance after he left? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so he moved in the beginning of um, 2013, November 2013, he moved. And um, he we were long distance and uh, we made it work. And then in March, end of March of 2014, I went out there and I went to Kansas City and had a visit and then I came home and a week later he flew out and we drove all of my things to Kansas City and I moved to Kansas City with him. Oh, wow. So is after moving there, I'm guessing you pretty quickly found out that that was a lie about his mom then? Oh, I knew before. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. So so you forgave him for that? Right. And so his mom and I also had had conversations and such. And she was like, yeah, I think he was just running away and didn't want to be honest with anybody. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I I found out everything that, you know, wasn't honest that he was telling me. And but uh, somehow, some way, I guess I wanted to make it work. I was so young and so dumb. (laughs) (laughs) And you so you move your whole life. Now, granted, you're young at that time, so you're not leaving a ton behind necessarily, but you still pick up your life and move to be with this person. And did you feel that he was truly clean at that time? Um, I thought he was. 
Um, but then when I moved there, you know, there was a bunch of like weed smoking. And then when he would go to his friend's house, he would be drinking. And I mean, like drinking so much that he was like blacked out at the end of the night. Wow. Yeah. And you're like, I did not move to another state for this to be my life. Right. So then in the end of April, I found out I was pregnant and I was on birth control. (laughs) You're like, what is happening? Why? Right. And so, um, yeah, that was the end of April that I found out that I was pregnant. And I was like um, maybe like four weeks and I got – and a blood test came back and it told me that I was uh, pregnant. Were you excited or what was your feeling? So I was actually home when I found out. And then when, and, and I honestly, I just started, I cried, I cried, but, but I have three babies now and I, I, I cried every time I found out. Yeah. (laughs) I get that. I mean, it's scary, you know. (laughs) Yeah. But it's also like, I mean, depending on where you are in life, I mean, and, and also you obviously were definitely not expecting that to happen considering you were taking birth control, which right. by the way is a, a fine example that birth control is not 100%. <laughs> right. And I had just turned 18 at the end of March. And so I was like just a baby. Yeah. And uh, yeah, telling my parents was hard because I didn't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. Were you? I'm going to guess you were a little scared to start a family with this person and the lifestyle he was living. Oh, absolutely. And then on top of that, you know, the one thing that that I really remember during my pregnancy is the one night that I came home from work and he wasn't there and I was trying to call him. And I was probably um, seven months pregnant at this point and he just wouldn't answer and wouldn't answer and wouldn't answer. And so finally I called his mom and I asked her if she had talked to him and she said no. And I told her what was going on. And so she came over to the house And we, you know, looked everywhere. And then after that, I found his phone on the bathroom floor with him nowhere in the home. So we went at the, at the time we were in Kansas city. So we went all over the place. We went to Lee summit, all these different suburbs looking for him. And by the time that his mom and I got back to the house, he was at the house in the bed, blacked out drunk and drove himself home. Wow. That is, yeah, that's. That's scary. I mean, for him and for other people out there that he's doing that. Yeah. It was it was probably one of the worst nights of my life, just imagining who he could have hurt if he hurt somebody. Yeah. So, so was that a breaking point for you? Like, I don't want to do this with you? Um, It was a breaking point. That The next few days were very tough, um, but unfortunately – I had moved my life and I was pregnant mm-hmm. and I was 18 and I didn't know what to do. So, of course, I stayed. And um, probably the next month, uh, he proposed to me after we moved into a new home. And I said yes as an 18-year-old who's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, of course, the little things in between, you know, he worked for his mom's company and so there was always, you know, lies between her and I, you know, he would tell me one thing, he would tell her another thing. And then later we would talk and be like, oh, well, he told me this. And she'd be like, well, he told me this. And <laughs> so we were finding out that he was lying to get away. And so that led us into believe that he was using again. 
So in January of 2015, I had my daughter and, um, that was great. He was very supportive through the birth and directly after the birth. Um, but as you know, when you have a baby, um, you get prescribed pain medication. Mm-hmm. And the next, after I went home, the next morning I woke up and all of my pain medication was gone. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. And did he admit it? Um, he told me that he had hurt his arm at work because they lift steel beams and set steel beams up and he hurt his arm at work and that he was in dire need for them and that he wasn't getting high off of them because they were helping his pain. Oh, in one night he needed to take (laughs) all of them to help his pain. He wasn't abusing it. Okay. Right. And so again, I just, I don't even really remember what happened that day. I know that, um, it was a big blowout. His mom and his stepdad came over and, of course, tried to talk us through it, tried to talk me down from wanting to go home. And, um, yeah, so we worked through that somehow. And um, through all of that, in between um, when we had my daughter January, end of January of 2015 and June of 2015, um, there was more lying in between um, his mom and I. Like he told me that he was going to look at a French bulldog for me one day. Mm-hmm. And he told his mom that he was going home for lunch. And I found out later that none of those things were happening and he was actually meeting up with somebody to go get more drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and after all of this ended and so in June of 2015, him and I moved, we ended up moving to Alabama where my dad lives because he told me that if he moved, he would be able to get out of the, you know, black hole of circling back into all of these people who were selling him drugs and, you know, would just keep bringing him down and texting him and it would just trigger him and he would have to go do it and this and that. And he was on Suboxone to try to stop the opioid receptors from, you know, letting the opioids get into his system mm-hmm. and this and that. Um, yep. So once we decided that we were going to move, he actually ended up telling us the person who reintroduced drugs to him was his stepdad's best friend. One night when we were at dinner was in the bathroom doing a line of pain pills and offered it to him. Oh my gosh. He's, I mean, he just everywhere then, every possible angle. Yes, anywhere, everywhere. Yeah, it was, I mean, yeah. So we decided that we were going to move to Alabama to better ourselves. Well, we stopped in Kentucky um, on our drive, and I was having severe pain in my, like, lower abdomen. And so my grandma was like, here, I'll give you a half of my pain pill. And so I was like, okay, fine. I've never had any drug addiction you know, issues at all. So I, I didn't, I was okay. Yeah. And so she, you know, um, she was just trying to help me out and she got her bottle out and she was like, I just refilled this yesterday and they, I have about 10 left. Oh, and you knew, you knew in the, in the pit of your stomach exactly what that meant. I went out to the U-Haul truck that was parked at the back of where we were staying at the hotel And I found a piece of paper folded with all of these pills in them. Not only just her pain pills, but her muscle relaxers too. Oh my gosh. So I woke him up out of his dead sleep and I said, and I got, and I had this envelope and I said, what is this? And what are you doing with my grandmother's medication? And he was crying, begging, pleading. I said, I'm turning around, I'm dropping you off and I'm going. Mm-hmm. crying, begging, pleading. I want my life with my family and my daughter and da, 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 da. 
<sighs> so we continued to Alabama. Yeah. Um, and when we got to Alabama, he got a job working at Chili's, which I know the surfing industry isn't the best industry. And shortly after we got to Alabama, he started um, buying Xanax off the street. And I was like, okay, well, maybe if he's buying Xanax off the sh- buying Z- getting Xanax, it'll help him with his anxiety and he won't feel so under pressure about everything. Because this, mm-hmm. this man had a ton of anxiety. I mean, he was like, all of this started because when he was young, he went to a doctor and the doctor prescribed him four milligrams of Xanax twice a day. And it just made him crave. I mean, Xanax is a benzo and it's addictive. Mm-hmm. And so he started um, buying Xanax. And then the buying Xanax turned into him buying an abundance of Xanax and then selling the Xanax to other people. Mm. Yep. And so then a few months passed and it was about August. And... He was just acting very strange and I couldn't figure it out. And so I called my mom and I said, you know, mom, I need to come home. I need a break from this. I need to not stress. And so. Yeah, because you're raising a small baby during this. It's like you're, I can't even imagine. I I mean, I I cannot imagine what you were going through. First of all, you were young and yes, you look back now and you probably are like, why did you keep taking this person back? Why did you accept this? But I understand that. When you're in it, people just never understand that you're raising a small child, which is so much. It's just so much. And then to have to continuously worry about this person and what they're doing, I can't imagine. I would have called my mom to go home too. I mean, like at the end of the night, every night, I would go through every pants that were in the top of the closet and I would check the pockets to make sure there was nothing. I would check his shoes underneath his soles. I mean, my life was literally hell. Uh, that, yeah, that is not a life. That is, that's a prison. That's miserable. Yeah. So in August, he started acting super weird and I called my mom and I told her I need to come home. My mom ended up calling him to try to find out what was going on. And he was like, you know, I'm not using, he said, I started doing Suboxone again and it's just going straight to my head and making me feel high, even though I'm not getting high. And I was just like, oh yeah, yeah, whatever. And I left, I took Mackenzie and I left and we just had to go. So we were gone for two weeks and while I was gone, um, the whole time he had what is what he called pink eye, where his eyes were constantly bloodshot when we would FaceTime him. Mm -hmm. Um, He had minimum contact with us while we were gone. Um, He had extremely weird sleeping habits. Like he would try to call me at like four in the morning and try to FaceTime and think that that was okay. And then like during the day he would be asleep for a bit. And he was constantly just, like, eating sweets like it was nobody's business. I mean, like, a whole tub of ice cream while we were on FaceTime. Mm-hmm. Um, so you knew he was still using and doing everything at that time. Oh, yeah. Um, Very obvious. I knew it wasn't heroin at that point um, because um, those aren't, like, the signs and symptoms, like, of, of a heroin addict, like, using heroin at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the last straw was, um, when I was gone, he took just a random $300 out of my bank account and I didn't know what the money was being used for or anything. And then he told me that he bought Xanax with it so that he could sell it for more. Mm. So two weeks later I returned home and when, after I returned home, I think it was probably, I don't, it was shortly after I got home, but my sister had a volleyball game. And we went to the high school to go watch her volleyball game. And on our way to the high school, he 
it was just so weird. He was like, all of a sudden, he had just gotten off work and all of a sudden he was just so exhausted. He needed me to go. We stopped at the grocery store across the street from the high school, uh, at the, at the corner store, right across the street from the high school. Um, and he was like, I need you to go in and get me a Gatorade, a Red Bull and a beef jerky. And I was like, okay. And when I came back, he was a completely different person. So I felt like it was a ploy to get me in somewhere so that mm-hmm. he could use drugs while I was in the store, which is extremely sad because my daughter who was eight months old at the time is in the back seat. Uh. Thankfully we just had to go right across the street on the way home. I drove because I just was so, I was just so sketched out about it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it was about October. So October is when I left and when I left fully. Um, but the night before um, it was finished, we had broken up. Um, it was in October. We, I got home, and he got home shortly after me from work. I got home from my dad's house. We were just hanging out over there. And I went upstairs to go take a shower, and I checked his wallet to see if he had had a good night at work because he was, I don't know, playing video games or something when I had gotten home. And all of his money was gone. And then where we stored our money at, all of that money was gone too. And so I went, I turned off my shower and I went downstairs and I was like, what is going on? And where has all of our money gone? And he was like, I knew that you would come home and that you would try to take all the money. And I was like, what? Why would I I do that? And so I'm upstairs. He runs upstairs at this point and like grabs a bunch of stuff. And I go back downstairs to check on the baby who's in the playpen in front of the TV. And when I go back upstairs again, He's in the bathroom putting something from the trash can in his sock. And I'm at the top of the stairs and I'm asking him what it is. And of course I'm crying. And he, I got my daughter out of the playpen and she was just kind of crawling around downstairs because I was only going to be up there for a second. And she was now at the base of the stairs and he pushed me down the stairs and my daughter, the top of my foot hit my daughter's head and she fell backwards onto the tile. Oh, my gosh. Um, he didn't care. He ran out the door, broke the um, broke the door. The door would no longer lock after that because he slammed it so hard, took off with my vehicle, with the car seat in it, and left. <sighs> so, and that's when you knew you were done with that situation. Yep. And we reported my car stolen. And, um, I had to get a hold of my dad because it's now 2 AM and my dad came and picked my daughter and I up and I have no car seat. So I carry my daughter on my lap for the eight mile drive back down to my dad's house. And the next morning we call the police department so that we can get a walkthrough so that I can go get the breast milk that I have stored in the freezer and then the fridge and some items, you know, just livable stuff. Yep. We get there and I go into the laundry room to get some clothes out of the dryer and there's a backpack sitting there and in the backpack there is meth and Xanax and needles. Oh my gosh. And I grabbed it up and I took it to the police that were sitting in the living room. Wow. And after I gave it to them, I finished packing my things and I left and on my way out, I called his mom and I said, um, you might need to come down here. Um, the police have all of the drugs that Alex had in the house. And, of course, she hung up on me. And his dad then called me and said, why would you do that? Why would you do that? And I said, well, how about the fact that I'm trying to save your son's life? Yeah. 
So I went home um, about a week later. I stayed at my dad's house for a week, and I went home about a week later with all of my things. And um, he went back to Kansas City. His mom came out, and they drove back a U-Haul with all his stuff. Um, and then about in two weeks, we had very minimal contact while he was there. And then about two weeks later, he called me crying and told me that he needed help and that he was on every drug he could find. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I noticed that. I saw the backpack. <laughs> So I called his mom, who I hadn't spoke to since then. And I told her, and she said, well, that's not possible because I just sent him for a drug test. And I said, yes, Kim, I know. But he's not hes not coming back to your office because he failed the drug test because it was tampered with, and they want him to go pee again. And he mm-hmm. said he's not going back. So they wanted to send him to, like, Connecticut or something. And where we live, we live in Prescott, Arizona. And Prescott, Arizona is um, known for their – they're, like, number one in the country for their drug rehabilitation centers. Um, So there's a lot of them here. Yeah. Um, Not as much as there was in the beginning when we first met, but um, there's very few now. But then Mm -hmm. it was known for that. And so they ended up just agreeing to send him here. And, um, he got here at the end of October. Um, and we tried to start to work on things as he was sober. Um, but then, you know, he would, he asked me to pay $80 for some pre-workout for him. And later I found out that really it was for what we call SARMs. It's like a steroid. Okay. So I found that out later and he would always want me to, you know, buy him all this stuff. And I was going to massage school at the time and taking care of a you know, 10, 11 month old baby. And yeah, so it was, it was really hard. Um, I was also, you know, waiting tables and doing what I could to get by. Um, Did he ever complete the program? Yeah, he completed the full full six month program. Um, But he was still lying to you. He was lying to me throughout the program. Yes. um, About doing SARMs and such. Um, But yeah, he completed the program for drug rehab. I guess actually SARMs is still a drug, so he was still using. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, after the program um, ended, so he was there for six months. I think he ended in like April. On Mother's Day, he told me that he no longer wanted to continue to further our relationship, which was devastating to me because I was the one who did everything for him in this relationship while he was recovering. Mm-hmm. And so – He started dating another girl who was also in recovery shortly after. And uh, he would call me some nights and tell me like, oh, I don't know what to do. Mariah's relapsed and she's staying at so-and-so's house. Well, one night Mariah was staying at a guy's house that I was actually friends with and he lived right across the street from me. So I went over and I knocked on the door and I asked her what her intentions were if she was still using and she was around my daughter. Mm -hmm. really couldn't give me a straight answer. Um, And that's when I knew that it was going to get bad again. So right after he got out of rehab, he started actually working for the rehab. And he was um, like the network manager. So he would actually get people into rehab so that they could get sober. So he was sober for a solid almost two years because he had this job um, of doing this. He then switched to another company here called Viewpoint. And he was like number one in the area for like getting people off of drugs and into rehab and keeping them sober. Um, so you guys weren't together, but I'm sure through that, that that made you feel confident in his parenting and like, okay, I can leave, I can leave my daughter alone with him. Absolutely. Because in treatment, when you have to, when you work in treatment, you have to take drug tests. 
But when you're that high up in the company, if you're like, oh, I don't want to do it today, you can get by without doing it. Okay. So um, after that, it was April of 2017, and I got served with um, paperwork to go to court, which is fine. I didn't mind. Um, We went to court. Um, Court was settled by July. In court, the only thing I asked the judge is that if he's going to have overnight visits, that he get drug tested once every two months. And his lawyer said, if you're going to ask for that, then we're getting more time. Um, so I backed off and I didn't do it. That was July of 2017. And the beginning of August of 2007 or the end of August of 2017, he took his first seven day vacation with my daughter to go to, um, Kansas city. And they were supposed to return home on September 4th. And on September 2nd, he was found dead in the room with my daughter. And the only reason his mom found him was because they were supposed to go out on a boat. And it was 1030 and they were supposed to be leaving in 30 minutes and the door was locked. So his mom had to go find the keys. Oh, my God. Nicole, my entire body, like I am just covered in chills. Yeah. So I was actually in Vegas at the time celebrating my 21st birthday. It was late. You know, my birthday was in March and my mom and I had just – I just had had my first seven days away from my daughter ever. So we went on vacation and I was in Vegas and his mom called me and she said, hi, honey, are you sitting down? And I said, yeah. And my first thought is, oh, no, she told me about the chiggers. Mackenzie's allergic to chiggers and something happened. She said, I just want to let you know that Mackenzie's okay, but Alex is dead. Oh, my gosh. What? I'm sure you're completely shocked, I'm sure. Yeah. Completely. Um, And I fell to the floor, and when I got up, I said, I got to go. My mom was um, at a meeting for her timeshare because that's where we were staying in Vegas, and I called and called and called, and she wouldn't answer. Finally got a hold of my grandma, and I said, I need you to get a hold of my mom, and she said, what's wrong? And I said, Alex is dead. And she wanted details, and I couldn't give details. And all I remember my mom telling me is that when she finally got back to our room, that I was screaming, just screaming. And so the next day, my mom and I had to drive back to Prescott. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I hopped on a plane, and I had to fly to Kansas City. And that afternoon, I had to go to where his body was. And because my daughter was next of kin, and I'm her guardian, I had to identify and release his body. Mm. And, yeah. Nicole, did they – you found out your daughter was alone in that room with him for hours – um, I found out that he had actually died at about um, 2 o'clock in the morning, and they didn't find him until 10.30 in the morning. And how old was your daughter at this time? She was two and a half. Oh, my God. You just can't even imagine. Yeah. I'm sure you've played out that night for your daughter in your head so many times. I still do. You know, when we found out, um, 
that he was using, it was because when they came to the crime scene and they were investigating, um, in the room, there was like a hallway slash closet. And then there was another room at the end of the room and there was a spoon, heroin and needles and Xanax. And he had all that around your daughter too. So in all those hours, she was possibly able to be exposed to all of that as well. Right. Fortunately, the doors were shut and she didn't know how to open doors at the time. So she possibly could have, yes. Fortunately, the doors were still shut when everybody got there. But when they found him, my daughter had to suffer through his mom finding him and screaming hysterically because she was there by herself, calling the police and, you know, telling the police, you know, he's he's dead. My son is dead. My son is dead. And still to this day, my daughter remembers his eyes being red and open and foam coming out of his mouth and she's six now she just turned six in january but we went through two years of her going to therapy and doing um i don't really i always say it wrong but it's the emdmr edmr okay trauma therapy with the lights yeah and that helped her tremendously but she was going to therapy twice a week every week how is she doing now? Does she – I mean, she remembers that, but you said it helped tremendously. So in the beginning, was it affecting her in a way that where you were just doing it for preventative reasons or was she having trouble sleeping or what was happening? So um, the number one thing was preventative so that she could yeah. get the healing now and not have to deal with so much trauma later in her life. Um, but she also would like – pick up pictures of her and her dad and just like start crying. And even as she got a little bit older, she would like bring the photo albums to me and she'd be like, I want you to throw these away. I'm so mad. I just don't want these pictures. Um, yeah. So she, yeah. She how, are you, how are you doing? Because you had to be strong and your first thought, your first is instinct is to be a mom and realize what your daughter's been through, but also as much as this person put you through, this is a person you loved and you shared a child with. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'm doing a lot better now. Um, I work in Sedona and I do aesthetic work. So I have a lot of clients that come that live in Sedona and Sedona is known for healers. And mm-hmm. oftentimes I have For instance, I had one client who came in to me and she was like, I just wanted to ask you who the brown haired man standing behind you is. (laughs) So a lot of like mediums that if you should say, could say, um, come to me and tell me that he's present and he talks to me. And I mean, like they've had full on conversations with him that people wouldn't know that we have talked about in the past. So... Um, yeah, I mean, I'm doing okay now. Um, when this happened, my, um, my two sons, their dad and I had just started dating a couple of months prior and, uh, now we're getting married in June and we have two boys and Mackenzie loves her brothers. Mm. Um, but she's doing a lot better now and she, you know, during the pandemic, she spent six months with her grandma and grandpa in Kansas City because they started school. And here in Arizona, we didn't because we had a very high number of, you know, mm-hmm. 
So um, we actually went to an attorney and paid for them to get um, decision, like decision, educational decision making for her so that she could go to school with them. She came back at the end of December, right before Christmas. And for spring break, she's going out to visit them again. So she has a very strong relationship with them. And um, they talk about him often. And we do too here. And all the time she says, Mommy, look in the sky. You see that star? That's my daddy. Oh, that's, I, I feel like that, well, first of all, it's beautiful that I love how seeing things through children's eyes. Um, I don't think I truly grasped that until I finally had my own child, but um, I feel like, I mean, thank goodness, you know, she has you and I, and I, I think it's amazing that you've uh, made sure that she continues on a relationship with them. And I'm sure they're so appreciative of that too, because that's their, their connection to their son that they lost, which was hard. And it sounds like, you know, for a long time, they were in quite a bit of denial um, about how serious it was for him. And I'm sure they've been through uh, a lot mentally with that. So I think that that's fantastic that you've allowed them to continue that relationship when, you know, you, you didn't have to do that. And um, so I'm glad that she has that. And I'm glad that you both are, have taken the steps to help yourselves mentally and, um, I just, what an experience to have in life. And at, and you're still so young. I mean, at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was the most devastating thing that I've ever experienced in my life this far. Nicole, if someone's listening and they're, they find themselves in a relationship like you, young, middle-aged, whatever age it may be, you know deep down. I mean, you after you figured it out, you knew deep down what was going on. Is there any advice you'd give your younger self or to someone listening? Um, Yeah, the advice that I would give my younger self or somebody listening would just be to really tune into yourself and listen to yourself because the things that you feel that are going on and the intuition that you have is probably all true. It's probably all happening. And eventually, in the end, you'll find out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. I mean, we we have that gut feeling for a reason, and we have to listen to it. Um, I I'm. We talked about doing this podcast a long time ago, but it was before I was doing episodes um, online, and uh, you know, before the pandemic. And I'm so thankful we were able to connect, and um, that you were able to come on and share your story with us, Nicole. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Yeah, and thank you for listening to the Heartbroken Podcast. <laughs>